Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me are John Salentano, our business editor, Sharp Smith, our technology editor, and Jim Fryer, our managing editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. The 2022 Volume 4 is available now. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com intelligence. So listeners, you're going to want to listen to the very end today because we've got some great uh, Eagles Kansas City uh, information coming up. But first, we're going to start with wireless stuff. John, I think you're going to start us off with um, cable companies and wireless. Jeez, let's say I don't know how I follow up that intro. But um, uh, look, you know, the the, the cable companies um, uh, and, and their involvement in broadband and wireless has been an interesting development over the past year. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of jockeying between the uh, the cable companies and, and, and the fiber network operators and, and the mobile network operators kind of poaching on each other's subscribers. And, um, you know, they're, they're getting subscribers to switch with aggressive offers for fast broadband connections and, and fair, meaning lower prices. But when you look at the, um, the subscriber net additions uh, on, on, of the two leading cable companies, that's Comcast and, and Charter Communications, and by the way, when we say subscriber net additions, we mean the gross additions less any losses they incur in the period. Um, but over the past few years, it, it, it's you know we've seen some interesting dynamics here. So, at the end of uh, uh, 2022, both uh, companies, uh, uh, Comcast reported um, over 32 million broadband subscribers, and Charter had a little over 30 million. Um, you know, they've had a pretty good run over the past few years, averaging net additions of uh, something like 1.2 to 1.3 million a year, if we go back, say, five years. And many of these gains have come at the expense of the telephone company digital subscriber lines, uh, where they've been displaced by the faster uh, cable networks. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit in 2020, obviously broadband demand of people working and staying at home, the broadband demand spiked. And that year, both of the cable companies reported um, net ads of about 2 million each. And then, you know, in 2021, that growth rate settled back to the um, uh, what we call the average annual run rate, which is in that 1, 2 to 1, 3 million a year rate. 2022 came along and Lo and behold, the bottom fell out. You know, even though they had some growth on their cable subscribers, they only added about uh, Comcast only added about two hundred fifty thousand, and Charter was uh, about three hundred and forty-four thousand. Collectively, that represented a decline of about two million broadband net ads just in one year. And um, you know, although you know the losses 
or the reduction in net ads is relatively small compared to their combined base of over 60 million broadband subscribers. It, it really hit their growth rates. And um, the losses came mainly uh, at the expense, uh, were, the losses were due to the the, the, the wireline companies like AT&T and Verizon and Frontier ramping up their fiber to the home installations and uh, ending up taking market share from the cable operators where their um, their territories overlapped. Um, at the same time, we had the rise of uh, fixed wireless access from Verizon and T-Mobile. Um, they both ramped up their deployments and were able to take um, subscribers from the cable companies uh, by offering, uh, you know, maybe not as fast as a broadband connection, but uh, but one that was workable and at a fair price. And in, um, you know, in 2022 alone, T-Mobile added 2 million fixed wireless access subscribers and Verizon another million too. Most of these are coming from the cable companies. But, you know, the cable companies weren't going to sit by and, and let this happen without responding. And uh, they ramped up their own mobile uh, service offerings and, and actually took back some share from the, the, um, the cellular carriers, both Comcast and Charter are mobile virtual network operators on the Verizon network, and um, and they've been um, attracting uh, Verizon customers to their networks uh, by offering uh, attractive rates in in bundling the services, their broadband service, their internet services, and their wireless in one package at a at a um, an attractive price and. Um, what this does is it creates, uh, well, obviously it drives new revenues for the cable companies, but it creates what we call stickiness, meaning it makes it harder for a subscriber to switch from one service provider to another when they have, they're have they buying more than one service from the, the same company. So, you know, Comcast, it, it, you know, added, uh, well, since 2019, uh, both companies have added in three to four million wireless subscribers to their network. And uh, both ended the year with uh, interesting 5.3 million subs, mainly at the expense of the um, the MNOs operating in uh, in their cable footprints. So, you know, it, it doesn't end there. I mean, both Comcast and Charter actually have bigger wireless plans. They spend a lot of money in in the auctions for um, CBRS licenses, and are gradually building out those licenses, overlaying their cable networks. Um, uh, where they have uh, the, the spectrum uh, uh, on top of their uh, their cable um, services. Um, look, they're not going to build out a nationwide wireless network to compete with the, the big players, but they are going to offer branded wireless services in their territory. Um, you know, they, they're taking what they refer to as a capital light approach, meaning they're using a, a strand-mounted small cells that are installed on the aerial cables that run through neighborhoods uh, for their cable service, and um, you know, uh, and yet still be able to offer their subscribers roaming if uh, if those subscribers go outside the cable company territory. So, you know, both companies see growth in wireless, um, even as they try to protect their their traditional broadband business from uh, from uh, further encroachment. Um, but I think uh, you know the competition will will help them decide uh, 
where and to what extent they actually deploy uh, and make investments in uh, in expanding their wireless services. But uh, it's an interesting dynamic that's back and forth between the the, the two camps, and uh, we're going to continue to watch it. Well, that was really interesting, John. Thank you. And Sharp, you're going to talk to us about the airlines uh, in 5G. Yes, Leslie. And uh, first, I'd like to comment a little bit on on uh, what John was talking about. The uh, uh, it's it's uh, interesting with with all of the uh, infrastructure that the cable companies have in place in the neighborhoods that with those strand uh, uh, small cells. They can put up small cells all the way through the neighborhood and never have a, a public hearing. So they can uh, they can build out their their wireless network in, within their footprint really very fairly easily and quickly. And uh, so that's always been sort of the the tantalizing uh, aspect of. Uh, of cable companies getting into wireless is that built-in uh, backhaul that they already have in place that uh, is just waiting to be uh, to be optimized. Yeah, that's a very good point, Sharp. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, you know, they have the, a few vendors that are stepping up to make those strand-mounted small cells available. You know, Samsung was the first one, but I, I saw recently Comscope introduced another one as well. So. Yeah, I think there's there's opportunity and the, there's gold in them there hills. <laughs> <laughs> I guess somewhere, and they can do it without a hearing until somebody complains. That's happened in um, this area a little bit. People have said, "I don't want that mess on my front lawn." Yeah, but with the strand, uh, with the strand, there is no mess on the front lawn. There's they don't even know it's there. No yeah. boxes. Uh, no boxes. No, it's, it's just hanging on the uh, on the cable that's running down oh, the neighborhood. Uh, okay. In the back, usually through alleys or in backyards, you don't even notice it. it yeah, it's, it's a uh, different kind that's happening here. Okay. Yep. So anyway, uh, uh, what back to what I wanted to talk about uh, on uh, uh, on February eighth, we uh, we talked about a letter that uh, had been obtained by uh, Reuters that was from the uh, International Air Transport Association. And the letter from, uh, from, from them to the FAA uh, basically saying that the international airlines are uh, not going to make uh, the deadlines to retrofit their altimeters to guard against interference from 5G emissions. And, um, as you know, this has been a, a an ongoing issue getting the uh, getting the airlines to uh, make sure that their altimeters don't send out uh, uh, emissions that uh, that somehow they can uh, they can keep their altimeters from being uh, interfered with by uh, the five G uh, C band signals from the transmitters that are near the airports. And uh, the, uh, according to, uh, and the, the, the uh, if you look back in time, uh, in June uh, 2022, um, basically the FAA uh, said that 
uh, airlines and other operators of aircraft equipped with affected radio altimeters must install filters or enhancements as soon as possible. That's June 2022. And in that same letter, uh, the FAA said filters, replacements for commercial uh, for the commercial fleet should be available on schedule and would uh, permit the work to be largely completed by July 2023. And uh, at, after that time, wireless companies expect to operate their networks in urban areas with minimal restrictions. And uh, basically the, the letter from the International Air Transport Association uh, just says uh, supply chain problems still affecting airlines. They're not gonna be able to make uh, the retrofit deadlines. Um, and uh, and then, they, then they mentioned that uh, uh, quote, it's critical that we acknowledge and accept the fact and move collectively to change our approach to this issue now before many carriers are unable to continue to serve the US market during the peak summer travel season. And I'm sure that uh, that sent shockwaves through the FAA. Um, we have enough trouble with our air traffic controllers and our, our 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 airlines to not have uh, uh, all the international airlines coming, bringing people here for uh, during the the travel season. So, um, you know, this story just has legs like we never thought it would. Yeah, and the FAA is a bit chaotic at the moment. Um, there was an. Uh, authorization hearing um, held this week in Congress for them. And the, all the people who testified said they don't have enough people. They don't, the things are moving too slowly. They all mentioned the flight where Captain Sully landed that plane on the Hudson. And they said, the FAA said after that, it would issue new rules for how to deal with a flock of birds flying into your engines. And they said, it's been 14 years. And that hasn't happened yet. And they're also saying the FAA doesn't have enough engineers with experience. Then, and the FAA has, I think they're still operating with a acting chief. They don't have a permanent chief. So there's a lot going on internally there that leads to this chaos on the 5G uh, situation on top of them not communicating with the FCC until the bitter end when the FCC uh, was saying, hey, we want to devote some of the C-band spectrum to 5G. I'm working on a story right, right now for this week that from the same group that now says, uh, oh, it's going to cost not just $26 million to retrofit all these planes, but $637 million. And this is a quote, the unfairness of this cannot be overstated. So, yeah, there's a lot of legs on this story. Mm. Yeah, really. So the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association, uh, they've renewed their call for NTIA to change its qualifications for what companies receive BEAD grants. And BEAD, 
I don't think I even spelled out in this story what it stands for. So the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association has stepped up its uh, call for NTIA to change its qualifications for what companies receive the big broadband deployment grants. The it, They've had a research paper commissioned by an economist and a telecommunications industry uh, consultant, uh, Dr. William Lair, who he says NTIA's bias toward fiber could raise the costs of the program tens of billions of dollars and drag out deployment. He says prioritizing fiber projects over other broad- broadband technologies represents a significant departure from the sound regulatory principle of technological neutrality. And that could increase the cost by 30 to 60 billion. And he, uh, you know, WISPA has, so they've stepped up their calls for this. And, you know, um, Nate, WIA, and CCA also have um, asked NTIA repeatedly to um, take more of a technology neutral stance to distributing this money because that's what Congress intended. Um, And I asked a WISPA spokesman, WISPA has gone into NTIA several times and had meetings lobbying on this issue. And I asked them, what does NTI say when you bring this up? And they, he just said they have yet to change their minds. So given that NTIA uh, is going to make its first distributions to the states by June 30th, it should be interesting to see what they actually do. And now for the story we've all been waiting for. Jim, take it away. Well, yes, to show you the the fairness of the Inside Towers editorial staff, we have a uh, representative from Philadelphia, myself, and uh, we have a a Chiefs fan, Mr. Sharp Smith, uh, Kansas Kansas born and raised. So uh, just to show you that we work both sides of the fence here at Inside Towers and show no no partiality, except that the Eagles are going to win. Um, and we had <laughs> so we had a good story uh, that just ran uh, Thursday from uh, uh, Paul Kapuska, who is the editor in chief of Stadium Tech Report, and we've developed a nice working relationship with with Paul um, as a as a media media partner. We call them. And um, uh, Stadium Tech Report does, does a great job of, of really diving into the deep end of uh, how stadiums are retrofitted for the modern sports fan. And, and uh, particularly, Paul did a nice deep dive for us on um, the coming big game on, on Sunday uh, down, in, down in Phoenix at uh, State Farm Stadium. Uh, it's it's the first Super Bowl. Uh, and Paul points out that while the first Super Bowl in 2008 was the first one before the current explosion of mobile device usage, first Apple iPhones had only been available since 2007, and uh, by 2015, though the uh, the stadium networking revolution. According to Paul, was was in full motion. So the the, the current stadium in at in, in Phoenix um, 
features a new Cisco Wi-Fi network that included uh, mostly top-down and some handrail antenna deployments. Uh, the stadium saw 6.23 terabytes of Wi-Fi data used, which is the most seen to that day. Um, and the, um, the, the, the cellular DAS from third-party operator Crown Castle used Comscope gear, which uh, brought improved signals to areas both inside and outside the venue. And that helped Verizon Wireless, AT&T, and Sprint hold a combined total of a 6.56 terabyte used in around the stadium. And this was last year. Uh, the combined total was 12.79 terabytes, uh, according to um, Stadium Tech Report at the time, reported that it was far and away the biggest single day of wireless data they've ever heard of. Um, I'm sorry, this was, this was again, back in, in 2015. So now eight years later, fast forward, uh, those totals seem like uh, numbers a big venue might see in the first hour after a fan's arrival. Uh, but uh, last year's Super Bowl, for instance, at SoFi Stadium in California, they set a new high watermark with 31.2 terabytes of data and 30.4 terabytes of cellular data. And that was on uh, Verizon's and AT&T's network. So uh, to handle the new requirements of the, of the game uh, and the big events will follow, State Farm Stadium replaced its entire Wi-Fi network along with its core network components with this new Cisco gear, in, which included 300 of the new 9104 Martin antennas which provide a, a longer, more focused uh, connectivity beam. The uh, the the vice president of technology for the Arizona Cardinals, who obviously uh, operates that that stadium, um, his name is Mark Feller, and he said the 9104s were part of a new combination Wi-Fi design for the upper seating deck. And the 9104s were mounted overhead in the rooftop and the roof infrastructure, which was an area that was too far away for previous Wi-Fi antenna designs to work properly in the, in the lower part of the, the stadium. So then the stadium added approximately 600 underseat enclosures for Wi-Fi and DAS gear. So, uh, fans there are going to be getting it from, uh, above and below and, uh, Mr. Feller said the underseat deployment was started in 2001 and finished last year. Um, and they were able to use existing expansion seams to cut down on the number of concrete core drills required. So while underseat has become a proven design, the, the farther reach capabilities of the newer Cisco gear is, is already winning rave reviews, according to this uh, stadium tech report. So uh, we... Uh, we thank Paul for, for contributing that and informing us of uh, how this um, major sport event will be delivered to us on, and delivered to the in-stadium fans primarily um, on, on Sunday. So with that, I will, uh, along with my fellow Eagles fans out there, and you know who you are, so some people at Digital Bridge, Vertical Bridge, uh, there's a uh, Kevin Doherty at, at, with Nate, big Eagles fan. So uh, we're all going to be pulling for them. And uh, go Birds. Uh, Sharp, any rebuttal on that? 
I'll match Clayton Funk against all those other people. <laughs> Kansas City Clayton, yes. Um, I'm sure I'm sure we know what side he's on, and uh, we heard a rumor that he is actually going to the game. So, uh, yes, I, there, so I hope he has a great time, and I hope he utilizes all those uh, all those all that great technology that's been uh, put there for him to uh, to soak it all in. So, uh, have fun, everybody, and uh, enjoy enjoy the game. I heard an interesting angle on on the stadium. The uh, the guy who oversees the um, grounds, the the field, uh, apparently has been there since uh, the the beginning. He's been he's done the field work and overseen preparation and and uh, grooming and manicuring of the field for fifty seven years. They refer to him as the sod boss. <laughs> So they did. So they, they did a little a little piece in in the New York Times on him uh, this week just to commemorate his uh, contribution. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And very low tech. <laughs> hey, you got to know your seeds, man. <laughs> All right, we look forward to the game. Yeah, getting anything to grow in Phoenix, I'm sure, is always uh, probably an interesting uh, event. But. Um, yeah, no, it should be fun, and uh, hope, hope everybody enjoys it. All right, that's a wrap. We promised you a special story at the end. Thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. And for a complete rundown of all the week's stories, check out our Saturday edition. We will see you in a week. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.